We conclude our summer series today, The Unusual Suspects, looking at perhaps the most unusual suspect of them all, a man I'm sure you've heard of. He's called Jesus of Nazareth. So we started this series with three preliminary observations. Number one, that is the Hebrew prophets are not fortune tellers. They were not primarily folks who kind of gazed into a crystal ball, read your horoscope, or looked at the tea leaves. They weren't Nostradamus-style conspiracy theorists. The prophets were truth tellers. They spoke truth to power. They spoke up for the marginalized. And this we see in all of the prophets, and maybe especially the last two Sundays we were able to focus on this as Phil spoke on Amos and on Nehemiah. You see this idea that the prophets speak for those um, who often don't have a voice or whose voice have been muted. The second thing I said as a preliminary idea is that although the prophets often have this kind of negative tone because they're kind of speaking out against injustice, to follow the voice of the prophet is not to kind of condone all complaint. So hopefully you haven't taken this summer as an opportunity to complain about your spouse or to complain about your kids or to complain about your work or complain about your church. So prophetic voice is not equal to complaint, even though prophetic voice often does complain. It's more than that. And so we need to be careful not to kind of fall into just a negative attitude, having spent now 12 weeks on the prophets. And lastly, I recommended Brueggemann as a voice to kind of follow along. Um, I don't know if any of you picked up on that, but you still could. He's written a lot, uh, three books especially, Prophetic Imagination, a hopeful imagination, and finally comes the poet, are three shorter books that he's written on prophecy, and I would encourage you to look at. So following along this idea that Scripture has competing narratives, and not just Scripture, but all of life really has competing narratives. We can call the one narrative the narrative of Pharaoh or the king. It's the dominant story that tells you that you need to be anxious because there's not enough to go around. and You need to accumulate all you can. If you can accumulate the most, you can form a mon monopoly. But the problem with that is, is it always leads to violence. It happened to Pharaoh, it happened to Solomon, it happened to, to um, all the kings of the world, really. And so the, the other narrative, whether we call it the narrative of the neighbor, which is what Brueggemann referred to it in this video, or the narrative of the prophet, it's a different story. It's a story that says you don't have to be anxious because God will take care of you. Uh, there's not a scarcity of things that... God has created an abundant world for you to have an abundant life. Uh, Jesus says this. He says, I come that you may have life and life more abundantly, uh, full of joy and full of hope and full of gratitude and compassion. And I would even say full of courage to kind of stand up uh, for the marginalized as the prophets often do. So this is the story that we've been looking at, this kind of alternative story this uh, the neighborly uh, narrative. And so as we come to Jesus, uh, we ask this question, kind of who was Jesus? We, we talked about this, uh, we confessed it uh, together in the call to worship this morning, uh, the messianic confession from Matthew's gospel. Who do people say that I am? He asked his disciples. And said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. 
Some say you're one of the prophets. Let's just pause right there and ask, why was it that people were saying that Jesus was one of the prophets? It's not as though the prophets had been contemporaries of the Jewish community. For them, with the exception of John the Baptist, who seemed to have broken the mold and reintroduced the role of the prophet back into their imagination, there hadn't been prophets for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Rabbis they knew, priests they knew, kings they knew, emperors now they knew, because they had been taken over by one empire after another. But they hadn't seen a prophet in a long, long time. So when Jesus comes along, initially they say rabbi because he looks like any other Pharisee, right? He's teaching, he's got disciples, he goes to the synagogue, and rightly so, they think, aha, he's a rabbi. And so they even refer to him as such. But as he continued to work, as he continued to speak, they started to realize this guy's not like those other guys. He speaks with a different type of authority. The way he comes at these things is more or different. So much so that when Jesus asked his disciples, who are people saying? What are they saying about me? They're saying you're like John the Baptist. You're like Elijah. You're like Jeremiah. You're like one of the prophets. So uh, 12 weeks ago, on our opening uh, sermon in this series, we looked at a profile of the prophet. And we're looking particularly at Moses. So I'm going to go back through that profile to see to what extent Jesus kind of fits it, which might answer the question why people were saying about Jesus that he was one of the prophets. So we'll start with the first one. That's Jesus as messenger. So the first profile of the prophet is that a prophet speaks on behalf of God. And we see this from Abraham to Moses to Elijah and Elisha and Nathan and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and on and on and on, the prophet's primary role was as messenger. They spoke to the people of God generally, but sometimes they spoke to a larger crowd. But they said, on behalf of God, thus saith the Lord. Like, this is what God wants you to know. And so certainly Jesus fits into this category. In fact, I think he fits it better than anyone else. Jesus is not just some messenger of God, but Jesus is the very Word of God. So that the Gospel of John will start, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if we keep on reading, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We cannot understate the centrality of Jesus to our lives and our faith. Jesus is the Word. It does not say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word got written down so that we could argue about it and have different translations and denominations. Right? Scripture is important, but Scripture is not God. Scripture comes from God. Jesus, on the other hand, holds that identity. Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. Jesus is the, the logos, the ultimate kind of logo um, of who God is. And so when he speaks, he'll say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. And I would say that's the, the same today, that Jesus is the truest and most ultimate representation of who God is. If you're wondering what God is like, you look at Jesus. When you go to read Scripture, you should read Scripture, and I would argue all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, through the lens of Jesus, that we are essentially Christocentric. 
that Jesus is the lens through which we read reality, which, through which we understand each other, and through which we understand Scripture. That Jesus will be that ultimate model for us. Next, in terms of the profile, is that uh, Jesus is a madman. Which I, I realize we might want to pause and maybe frame that just a little differently. But we said the prophets were mad in the sense that they, be, they behaved so bizarrely. That the prophets weren't just the most kind of well-respected people in the community because they, they didn't just speak prophetically, they acted prophetically. And sometimes prophetic action comes across in weird ways. You remember Isaiah prophesied for three years naked. Let's say, uh, praise the Lord that we don't follow that scriptural practice, right? None of us wants to gonna go around, walk around naked for three years. Jeremiah buys that new pot only to smash it. Ezekiel um, builds a sandcastle and lays down next to it. These are bizarre behaviors. And so sometimes I think when we're reading scripture or we're remembering these stories, we, we do it with such a kind of romanticized memory that it doesn't strike us how bizarre their behavior is. And Jesus fits this. They said, hey, look, Jesus, here's a, bl a blind guy. And he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> and he spits in his eye. He spits in his eye. Listen, if any of you came to me and said, hey, Robbie, I'm not feeling well today. Would you mind praying for me? And I spit on you. <laughs> Chances are that would be the last time you would get within spitting distance of me, right? <laughs> I mean, he takes mud. He smashes it on some guy's uh, face. Uh, they, bring, they bring him to this woman who they say has been caught in adultery. And he doesn't say anything. He just kneels down and starts writing in the dirt. Like, hello, rabbi. You got something to say? And he speaks in riddles. We, 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 talked about, we talked about this too. This goes to the next point that Jesus is a minstrel. The prophets are minstrels. They, they speak in these kind of poetic, kind of musical ways. They don't just have, you know, the most straightforward forms of communication. Um, Isaiah, <laughs> the first time he prophesies to Ahaz, says, uh, Ahaz, you can trust in God. You don't have to trust in the Syrian king because a baby's going to be born and the baby's going to eat cottage cheese and eat honey. And before the baby's old enough to know right and wrong, God will take care of you. To which the prophets, or to which the king is like, okay. Who let this guy in here? Can, 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 we get, can we get him out? We've got like plans to make. Of course, God had said to Isaiah just before that, you'll be my prophet. And he's like, oh yeah, that's great. And then he said, and, uh, you know, but everything's going to be destroyed. And he says, well, in what way am I going to be a prophet? He says, well, I'm going to have a remnant. And he said, oh, that's great. And he said, well, but the remnant's going to get destroyed. So that's not good. And then he says, but there's a seed in the stump. I mean, these, these kind of prophetic, coded messages are, are hard to decipher. I mean, what are they talking about? They're full of metaphor and hyperbole. Now, you might think that you follow the words of Jesus, but I, trust me, you don't. Not literally, anyway. Jesus says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. I guarantee you, we'd have a lot of one-eyed Christians in this world if they were taking Jesus literally. Or if, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Look, we, we, don't, we don't take those as literal statements. We take them as hyperbole. We understand that it's a metaphor when we say Jesus is the Lamb of God. It doesn't mean that if he doesn't shave, he grows wool. It doesn't mean that we serve mint and jelly with communion. 
forgive me. That's too much. But they're, but they're full of these kind of riddles and humor. Jesus seemed to be a really funny guy. It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard for us maybe sometimes to think of Jesus telling a joke. But I think it's because, again, we've kind of revered him as we should. But we've done it in such a way that we've almost destroyed his humanity. He's, he's telling us about his, his method of non-retaliation. Uh, right? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not respond with evil. And he tells the story about turning the other cheek and about going the second mile. And then he says this. He says, if someone sues you for your coat, you give them your shirt as well. Now, in our context, uh, that, that, even that sounds extreme, but it doesn't sound funny. Like, I've never heard that passage read and anybody laughed. But in the ancient context, you would have only had two pieces of clothing, an outer garment and, and then an extra garment if it was cold. There were no closets Right? It wasn't like if somebody sues you for your uh, coat, give them your shirt as well. Like go to your closet and pull something out. That means if they're suing you, which generally they're suing you for money, right? This ancient world was much like the contemporary world in, this, in that regard. But if you don't have any money and you're taking their clothes, if you take their outer garment, give them your, if they take your outer garment, give them your inner garment as well, you'd be standing in court naked. Like, there would have been a lot of people that would have laughed. It might have been a nervous laughter. Like, why is the preacher talking about naked up on the platform? <laughs> kind of like what you're doing right now. But then there are other people who would have said, now, wait just a minute. I don't think a rabbi should be making a naked joke. <laughs> right? But then there, there would have been some construction workers and some fishermen, right? And they probably said, hey, I like this rabbi. <laughs> He's my kind of guy. Jesus is certainly a minstrel. His parables which we often take to be object lessons so we can more easily understand, he actually tells us, when they said, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? He said, I speak in parables so people won't understand me. Now, is he being sarcastic? Or is he actually saying that he speaks in parables because he's trying to get us to think about deeper things, to kind of draw us in, so that to, to uh, attract us in a way is to press further. Jesus, of course, fits the fourth category, which is that of the martyr. So the prophets were martyrs. Uh, they were unpopular people. It's one of my biggest concerns for the use of prophet in the larger kind of Pentecostal charismatic circles. You see people using the title prophet. Um, it, that, it's not because I don't think people still function prophetically. Uh, and it's not that I don't think the whole church, in a way, functions prophetically when we speak for uh, justice and speak out against injustice. Um, again, these last two weeks, we've been trying to provide various ways in which you yourselves can kind of participate in such things. The problem is, is that um, the way I see it used, it's as though the prophet is like this popular position. Like, you should listen to me. I'm a prophet. I, I have a word of the Lord uh, for you. Well, my concern is that the prophets, particularly from the Old Testament, never really functioned that way. The prophets were the ones, they might be all happy and excited saying, God's going to save us. And everybody else is like, what are you talking about, prophet, when in the midst of a famine? And everybody else is sad. Or everybody else is joyous, like these are great times. And the prophet's over sitting in the corner crying, thinking God's going to judge you because you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So the prophets were always kind of just slightly off with the, with the dominant story. 
and it often ended in their peril. The prophets would be beaten, they would be imprisoned, they'd be thrown into pits, uh, they would be killed. In fact, when Jesus goes to Nazareth, he says to his congregation, uh, likely you will quote to me this pro- proverb, physician heal thyself, but he says to them, uh, no prophet is accepted in their own hometown. And so, certainly, Jesus' martyrdom uh, is the ultimate example of martyrdom, that Jesus dies the death of a prophet, uh, neglected by his very own, but holding true and faithful to the message of God that God had given him to share. We see this in Jesus as he weeps over Jerusalem, as he says, I wish like a mother hen I could protect you from the fire that's coming, but you won't come. And so therefore, you'll be burnt with me, which I think had very particular sociopolitical implications for what was going on with Rome and Jerusalem at the time. The last thing that we had said when we were talking about Moses in the fifth uh, profile of the prophet was that of mentor. <clears throat> so this is an often neglected one because, as I said, the prophets are often these kind of solo figures. But they were always concerned for the promotion of the faith, for the transmission of the faith. They weren't just seeking to kind of deconstruct things. They were looking to kind of reconstruct them in ways that the new generation could have faith and believe and practice. So Moses has um, Joshua. <laughs> I forgot his name for a second. Elijah has Elisha. Elisha has a school of the prophets. Uh, Isaiah, when he's not listened to by his contemporary generation, turns his attention to those who'll be in exile. And half of the book of Isaiah, uh, chapters 40 through 66, don't speak to Isaiah's contemporaries. They speak to those who would be in exile in Babylon, which wouldn't take place until Isaiah is uh, dead. So Jesus, the question is, is Jesus a mentor? And I think the answer is a definite yes. Jesus calls his disciples and they follow him. And people said then that Jesus was a prophet because he fit the profile of a prophet. He talked like a prophet and he acted like a prophet. So when he said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or the prophets. That probably made a lot of sense to all of them because Jesus had been a messenger. He had acted kind of crazy. He had been a minstrel. He had been a martyr and he had been a mentor. But Jesus... Well, certainly not less than a prophet is not reducible to a prophet. And I say that because there's a very unique uh, final part of the profile that Jesus fulfills, that, and he does this uniquely, and that is as Jesus the Messiah. But who do you say that I am? He said to his disciples. And they said, well, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I will call you, he's speaking to Peter, Rock, Rocky, right? His name's Cephas, but he's going to be called Rocky. And upon this rock, he says, I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For too long, I think we've thought of that as that we're going to come in to this kind of safe space, and we're going to occupy it until we're rescued by God. So the world is kind of hopelessly on its way to hell, going to burn in a handbasket, but, but we're going to be safe in our, our small little enclave. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, the church that's built upon the rock, the rock that is the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. 
But I think we've got that all together wrong. When it says the gates of hell shall not prevail, it means the gates shall not withstand the church. Gates, my friend, are stationary. They don't move around, right? Gates sit still. The church, on the other hand, does move around because the church is built on the rock, not, not just some kind of metaphor of a building that's stationary, but the rock of Jesus. And as such, the church is on the move. The church can grow. The church can expand. The church can be full of grace and truth like the one who has founded the church, right? It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not Phil's church. Oasis is God's church. We belong to God. We follow Jesus. And as we expand and as, as we forgive and as we do acts of mercy and kindness and love, the gates of hell itself shall not prevail. The gates of hell will be overtaken, will be overcome by the expanding of the church. That the church wins because the church is on the move. Because the church is here. Because the church is for the world. Jesus is the Messiah. We domesticate Jesus, unfortunately. We make Jesus kind of look like us the best we can. We need Jesus to kind of fit our expectations. I often ask my students, why did Jesus die? And I'm quick to get answers. And not that the answers are wrong, but they don't answer the question very well because Jesus loves us. Well, that's true. Uh, Because God wants to forgive us, that's also true. But neither the Romans, neither did the Romans kill Jesus, nor did the Jews want Jesus killed because Jesus loves us or because God wants to forgive us. The Romans executed Jesus because he did things and he said things that got him killed. They killed him as, as a failed revolutionary. They saw him presenting an alternative kingdom, one that they resisted. Like, look, we're not going to put up with these Jewish would-be kings. We crucify those guys. What's amazing about Jesus is that he didn't quite fit anybody's expectation. The Pharisees wanted a Messiah, but they wanted just a religious one. The Sadducees wanted a Messiah, but they wanted just a political one. The Zealots wanted a Messiah, but they wanted just a militant one. But Jesus comes fulfilling all of those to certain degrees in different ways, but offering us a new kingdom, a new way of being in the world. Johnny Cash did a cover of Depeche Mode's Personal Jesus. It's a pretty interesting song. I don't know if you know Depeche Mode. It's going to date me just a bit to my years in the 80s and early 90s. But uh, the song, in its very alternative rock kind of way, talks about your own personal Jesus, someone to make you feel okay. And so we have these images of Jesus that make Jesus look a lot like us, right? Jesus is going to look like me. He's going to sound like me. He's going to have my own political beliefs. He's going to have my own economic beliefs. And so Jesus ends up just being this caricature of what I would like to be as opposed to me really seeing the real Jesus who ends up being this rather dark-skinned, Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi who was saying there's a different way we can be in the world and actually follow God. I've got some pictures of Jesus. Some of these, many of these are from my childhood. I wanted to share some of them with you. So here's a picture of Jesus. Um, I'm pretty sure this hung on the Sunday school uh, room in my church. And I believe my grandmother also had this picture of Jesus in her Bible. 
And so as a young, as a young boy, I'm pretty, I'm pretty positive I thought this was exactly what Jesus looked like. Any of you? You recognize this Jesus? Like when we put that up, every one of you would have said, yeah, I know that guy. That's Jesus. Right? Jesus of Nazareth, right? Here's another one. I like this Jesus. He's very identifiable. He's the one in white. Right? Obviously. Right? Jesus would not be dressed in anything other than white. I'm very surprised that sometimes the Pharisees or the Roman soldiers had a hard time finding him. Right? I mean, everybody else was dressed in browns and blacks. He's the guy dressed in white. Like, every church drama I've ever seen, or if if you can remember these, again, from the 90s, human videos. Right? Jesus is the one dressed in white, obviously. That's John the Baptist who's watching out for. I love this Jesus. One of, those, one of the many praying hands, Jesus. This is probably a garden of Gethsemane. He's leaning up against the olive tree. But look at that guy. He could be an elder at any conservative evangelical church in the United States of America. <laughs> he is well-groomed. He has, he's got white skin. Uh, he's got just a little bit of a beard. Now, I love this Jesus. This is maybe a little less popular. Obviously, still dressed in white. Nice red sash. I call this my racially sensitive Jesus because he's holding the black sheep, right? <laughs> Not all the little white sheeps down there. Yeah. I like this Jesus. This is our attempt to be a little bit more, um, you know, culturally sensitive. Except he's still a white guy with green eyes. You know, he still fits us. So we think we want to distance ourselves just a bit, right? But not so much that it makes us feel uncomfortable. I'm not sure who that guy is. <laughs> he just barely recognizable as Jesus. Definitely some 1960 Western European Jesus. Uh, the bleeding heart Jesus is a, is a popular one. That's not quite as Eastern as others. Here's another. Uh, you can see that Jesus is a little more Eastern, looking a little more different, but still recognizable, right? Kind of some young Jesus, almost a little too effeminate for me. Come on, toughen up a bit, Jesus. I need to, don't. There is one popular evangelical pastor several years ago. (laughs) Hold on, we'll get to him in just a minute. There was one popular evangelical pastor seven years ago, several years ago, that said he would not worship a Jesus who he could beat up. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I'm not sure you're you're even reading the same text I'm reading, (laughs) or you're even part of the same faith I'm trying to promote. This, I call this one California Jesus. He's a cool, hip dude. <laughs> now, come on. How many of you have seen that on some kind of vacation Bible school curriculum? You recognized him. None of you had to wonder who he was. I've got one more picture for you here. Look at this guy. Now, that's an odd-looking fellow. It's kind of ugly. Look at him. Look at his hair, his brow, his nose, his eyes. BBC produced this several years ago as their best guess of what a first century Jew living in Galilee would have looked like. I love it. I love it because it challenges my own assumptions about who Jesus is. Look, we do have our own personal Jesus. We all do. We're going to have our own relationship to Jesus. Like, I can't have a relationship to Jesus for you, and you can't have a relationship to Jesus for me. This works in our families too, right? We can have multiple siblings in a family, but we all have our own relationship with our mom, right? It's all a little different. But what I want you to know, and what I, well, I guess I want me to know too, 
is that Jesus in the Gospels is a challenging character who calls us to live in ways that would deny ourselves. If we read the Gospels or we hear messages about Jesus and it never makes us feel uncomfortable, I have to think that some way we're just not understanding who Jesus is. If every time we read, we think, oh yeah, look at those dumb Jews or look at those poor disciples. They don't get it. They don't get Jesus like I do. Right? Me and Jesus? No. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was abandoned by his closest disciples because he's living a life and he's giving us a message that requires all of us, our complete selves, self-denial, concern for the other, taking care of the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the stranger and the prisoner and the sick and the hungry and the thirsty. That's who our Jesus is. He's a guy that looked like this. He's a guy whose family were refugees out of Egypt trying to come back into Israel. Scripture refers to him as the firstborn of the new creation. Coming out of the waters of baptism, I've said before, he's the first immigrant into the new kingdom. This is our Jesus. The most unusual of suspects. And he's the one, with all of his teaching and his behavior, who asks us, who do you say that I am? And he invites us to the table. Come and eat with me. Are you a tax collector? Are you a prostitute? Are you a Pharisee? Come and eat. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and experience the kingdom of God, for that is the good news, that it has come, and that I, Jesus, represent it.